Hey, welcome to Pickled Parables. My name's Jesse. I'm the host for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the surprise last time. We're entering into a new phase for Pickled Parables, where the ministry has partnered with several Bible teachers who will be coming onto the podcast and sharing different lessons with us. In the last episode, a buddy of mine named Hunter Hoover presented a, a lesson about the value of godly wisdom. I, I loved it. I really appreciated his work and the study that he put into it. If you haven't caught that episode yet, be sure to go back and give it a go because it is very beneficial to consider. Today's lesson is brought to you by Michael Rogers. He is a student of the Word and attends seminary in Arizona. Today he is presenting an overview of Job and the unique considerations that we can observe from this book. I'll let Michael take it from here. Hello there, everyone. My name is Michael, and I'm excited to talk to you all about the book of Job today. I especially want to thank Jesse for inviting me on here. His ministry has blessed me over the last few months that he's been recording, so I just want to express my gratitude for him inviting me to come on here. Um, before we dig into everything, I want to recognize that Job is a very long book of the Bible. We don't have a ton of time. So I hope this episode ends up at least encouraging you to read, read the book on your own. Job is very different from the rest of the books of the Bible. The theology of the characters in the book is different than the rest of what the Bible affirms. There's a lot of confusing stuff in there, especially for Christians. I encourage everyone to take time, lots of time, to read through and study the book on their own. But for now, I'm going to do my best to summarize what happens succinctly and still faithfully to get some of what God has for us in it. So the book starts out with Job. He is described as a good, righteous, and successful man. He is a good man, very wealthy, very devout. Then the scene changed to what we assume is heaven. God's there. Satan comes and stands before God. God asks what he's been up to. Satan says he's been roaming around the earth. Then God kind of brags on Job. He says to Satan that there is none like him on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It's high praise coming from God. Satan suggests that Job only worships God because he is wealthy and successful. So God then allows Satan to take everything from Job. All his animals, the source of his living, his livelihood, nearly all his servants are slaughtered. Job's sons and daughters are killed when a house collapses on them. Job with, is left with next to nothing except for the few messengers that delivered the news, his wife and his health. But what's amazing is that immediately after he receives all the bad news, chapter 1 verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 2, the same scenario plays out between God and Satan. Except this time, Satan says the only reason Job still worships God is because he is still healthy. So God allows Satan to plague Job with what's described as loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Still, Job clung to his faith. In chapter 2, verse 9, his wife, being so very supportive, says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And the section closes off with saying that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Despite all this suffering, despite that Job acknowledges that God has taken everything from him, well, everything except for the wife that tells him to die, despite all of this, he does not sin against God. The next 30-some chapters is a conversation that Job, with, that Job has with three of his friends. They come into the picture at the end of chapter 2, and they sit with Job in silence for seven days and nights. And Job finally speaks and says that it would have been better if he had not been born. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, Let the day perish on which I was born. In verse 11 he says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out, come out from the womb and expire? And in verse 16, Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? After that, Job and his three friends got into a bitter disagreement. All four of them have this theological worldview that God rewards the righteous, the innocent, the good people, and God always punishes the wicked. If you are a good, righteous person, then God will bless you with wealth and success and a good life. If you are evil, then God will punish you, take away your blessings, and curse you with disease and calamities. So naturally, Job's three friends conclude that Job sinned. They think that Job committed some sin in secret that they didn't know about, and they implored Job to repent so that his fortunes might be restored. But as we know, and Job knew, Job didn't sin. Job didn't know what happened in heaven, but he knew he had sin. There was nothing to punish. So now, the majority of Job is this back-and-forth argument between Job and his three friends. They think he sinned, Job says he didn't, and that God is punishing him unjustly. The word Satan in chapter 1, scholars debate whether or not this is actually Satan, or just someone being labeled, quote-unquote, the accuser. But what's so interesting to me is that Job's friends, this entire book, are essentially playing Satan. They are accusing Job of sin. It's all they do. They give reference to the justice of God and his power and his might, but they hone in on Job, insisting that he is guilty of something. They don't know what about, but he's guilty of something. So for many, many chapters, this back and forth goes on until God steps in toward the end of the book. But it's that dialogue, specifically Job's words, that sets up the main problem of the book. Bad things happen to a good person. What's more, God specifically let bad things happen to someone that God himself says is a good person. Job specifically attributes the catastrophes, the deaths of his children, to God. And this entire book is him trying to figure out why. God is so good, so sovereign, so powerful, so just. Why did this happen? And it's not like Job was inconvenienced by something as insignificant as losing a parking spot and is complaining to God about it. This is real suffering. In chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Job is hoping that God would kill him. His life is gone. His family is gone. And Job doesn't just pawn the blame off on Satan like a lot of Christians today like to do. He puts the blame squarely on God at the end of chapter 2. What's more, 
the Bible, God's word does not charge him with sin for that. And Job recognizes God's sovereignty over all circumstances, not just his. Listen as I read, starting in chapter 12, verse 13. With God and wisdom, this is Job speaking. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, stripped, and he judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away, stripped, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of the darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. God governs the course of history, no one else. Job knows this. He demands God speaks. Job wants to plead his case. He wants to know what is going on. And just as every critic of religion ever wanted, God actually speaks to Job to answer for this. Someone is asking God to explain the existence of evil and God speaks. Christian believers and skeptics alike have been asking this sort of question for thousands of years. And finally, here in Job, God steps into this situation and he speaks, but he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the question. God only speaks about his own power and sovereignty. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but here's God speaking, starting in chapter 38. 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress her action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I led the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God sounded for joy. Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? 
Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And then after God finishes speaking, Job very humbly and quietly repents. God has Job offer sacrifices for three friends for their foolishness. Then God restores Job's fortunes, doubling what he had at the start of the book. He had ten children, and Job ended up living 140 years. The last verse of the book says that Job died an old man and full of days. It's rather an abrupt end to the book. God spoke, but we still have all these questions. God didn't give an account of what he's done. We're glad God blessed Job for the rest of his life, but what are we to do with the rest of the book? Job's worldview is shattered. I mentioned before that the worldview that God blesses the good people and curses the bad. That's obviously not what happened to Job. His worldview is falling apart. There are parts of Job's dialogue that are almost reminiscent of deconstructing Christians today. Job asked in chapter 24 the question, Why do the wicked go unpunished? Verse 1 says, Why are not the times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Verse 12, From out of the city the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cry for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. Besides just Job's life, his entire worldview is coming apart, and he wants to know what's going on. And God actually speaks just as every skeptic, just as every skeptic dares God to do. And God doesn't explain anything besides how awesome and mighty he is. So what do we even do with that? One scholar named David Kleins concluded that, quote, even the fundamental questions about God and the universe, the author seems to be saying, however pressing, however distressing, have their own context in a world where human life goes on regardless, eating, drinking, begetting, dying. There is more to life than justice, more perhaps even than theology in general, however insatiable the human spirit may be for answers, however oppressed it may be by injustice. Yet the big questions that come of their own accord will not go away. Can't live with them, can't live without them, end quote. Is that it? The point of Job is that all these questions will never be satisfied. They won't go away. Perhaps if God actually answered Job's questions, surely Job would have a response and we would have critical questions. So maybe there's some truth to that, but perhaps there's more going on. See, critics of Christianity and religion in general very often hone in on the idea of faith, that faith is just blind. You have no reason to believe what you believe. You just believe. Prove that God exists. Prove your religion. Now, faith is certainly not devoid of facts and logic. Any Christian apologist would be quick to point out that Christianity is supported by plenty of evidence and reason. But sometimes having faith, having belief, isn't so simple as just proving something to be true. Virtually every parent has had to warn their children about hot stoves. Cautious parents advise their children against placing their hand on the hot stove or else they'll be burned. Now, you can have all the scientific data you want. 
You can count every time someone's hand touched the stove, calculate the percentage of the people who burnt their hand versus those who didn't. You can give the science, physics, and biology behind touching the hot stove. You can give every conceivable reason not to touch the stove. But if the child does not believe you, then he will touch the stove and burn his hand anyways, just to find out. So God doesn't answer Job's question. God only reminds Job of who he is. It's almost like he answers a question with a question. Do you not know who I am? It's like he reminds Job to have faith, to believe, which in God's eyes is everything. We Christians living long after Job now have it articulated clearly for us that people are only declared righteous by God through faith. We are sinners and helpless to change our disposition. We cannot make ourselves righteous. So Romans 3.28 says that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Romans 5.1 says we have been justified by faith and have peace with God. Galatians chapter 3, which Jesse recently taught through, pounds home the point over and over that we are justified, made righteous by faith. Now Job didn't know the precise theology like we do now. He didn't see Christ on the cross like we have. God hadn't revealed that in scripture yet, but even his day, people were still justified by faith. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So how else could Job said to have been blameless and upright? He had faith in God. Even in the midst of Job railing against God, you can find quick fleeting moments where he entrusts himself into God's hands. Job 19.25 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he, sh he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I, sh I shall see God. God did not answer Job's questions. God merely reminded Job of who he believed in. And that's enough. Job didn't need to demand answers from God. He trusted, you know, he ended up trusting who God is. Chapter 28, Job describes a wisdom that is possible that, that is impossible to have and understand. Surely, even if God were to answer Job, it would have been beyond our wildest imaginations. Understanding the mind of God isn't wisdom, or even for us. God says in 28, 28, that is Job chapter 8, 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So, it's not for us to know the ins and outs of God's doing. It is for us to believe in Him, though, to trust Him, even in the middle of great tragedies, loss, and heartbreak. And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to diminish anyone's tragedies. Don't hear me saying that if you're hurting, just buck up and have some faith. Job didn't say a word to anyone for a week. Take time to grieve, process. Take time to remember that God is still good and in control. And that there is something greater to hope in. Job didn't see the fruition of this, but we get to today. For a lot of the book, Job is ready to make a defense against God. Job is ready to justify himself, prove his innocence. His friends were accusing him of sin, much like Satan, whose name literally means the accuser. Job felt God was punishing him for sin. But we as Christians don't need to justify ourselves. 
We don't need to prove our innocence. We don't need to make ourselves righteous. We don't need to fear God's pun- God's punishment for our sin. We don't need to fear the condemnation of others, for the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all our sins, making us right with God. How? By faith. Again, Romans 5.1 says that we are justified by faith and have peace with God. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by God's grace through faith. What a freeing reality this is. So if you would but believe, you won't have to stand before God one day and explain to Him why you're not guilty. You know what 1 John 2.1 says? That if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our defender. He advocates for us. The end of Romans chapter 8 sums it up so well. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not need to be afraid of God like Job was. We do not need to be afraid that we sin in some sort of way that we couldn't detect. Christ has covered our sins. So will you not, if you haven't before, will you not come to faith in Christ? Will you not come to Jesus? He said that he will never cast out those who come to him. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are, your power and your glory and your majesty. Thank you for being in control of all things and knowing exactly what's going on in all our lives. Thank you for thank you for loving us anyways. Thank you for your grace and the mercy that you that you give us. Thank you for thank you for the book of Job. Thank you, Father, for all that you have given us in your word. Thank you to speaking to speaking to us through it. Pray that all would come to faith in faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray for all us Christians listening to this, that even in the midst of trial and tragedy, that we would cling to Christ, that we would cling to faith in Christ, that even in the hard times we would trust in you, who are in control of all things. 
pray that I pray that as we go about our week that we would come to you, that we would grow more and more into the image of Christ, becoming more like you every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yes, amen indeed. Thank you, Michael, for sharing your hard work with us. Job certainly is an artfully crafted piece of literature, for sure. If you have any questions about this lesson or any lessons in our episodes past, please reach out to us. You can email us at contact at parableministries.com or you can send us a message on Instagram at parable underscore ministries. We would love to have a conversation with you. Our goal with this podcast and even with our parent ministry, Parable Ministries, it's to provide resource and encouragement for Christians to grow in their spiritual development. And as we move forward with this new direction for people parables, I'm excited for you to hear different Bible teachers presenting the Word of God through different perspectives. In the next episode, uh, I will present a lesson and now explain a little bit more about our hope and our desire for this new direction. So, Until then, until next week, or the week after that, because every other week for the summer, until then, I'll catch you later.